you have an idea that you'll have a plan and that you'll stick with that plan and that any deviations from that plan are somehow a failing, right? And, you know, for me, I've, I've finally learned to embrace that the deviations from the plan are actually the accelerators to a better plan. Welcome to The 43%. I'm Claudia Reuter. This show forgets about the leaning in or leaning out debate and talks to successful women about their path toward creating a life that includes both family and career. Our name is a nod to the fact that 43% of women do leave the workforce at some point when they have children. We all have our takes on why and what might be done to better support working mothers. In this show, though, we explore a wide range of experiences and ideas. That was today's guest, Cheryl Toto. Cheryl is the president and CEO of the Marketing Science Institute, a 50-year-old marketing research institute which she has transformed to become the source for breakthrough thinking across marketing, data science, behavioral science, branding, and strategy. A graduate of Dartmouth and Wharton Business School, Cheryl always knew she was going to lean into her career. But in our conversation, she shared her journey across industries, her own personal lows and highs of leaning into her career while raising young children, and the emotional impact of daycare. Hi, Cheryl. Thanks so much for joining today. Of course. Hi, Claudia. Great to connect. So I thought by starting, do you mind taking us through where you are today, what your current role is, and what your life looks like at home and at work? Sure. So I'm currently the president and CEO of an organization called the Marketing Science Institute, and we're based here in Cambridge, Massachusetts. MSI has been around for over 50 years, and I kind of joke it's like the best kept secret in marketing. We are an organization that works with the top professors from the top universities in the country and also with um, leading companies across all sectors, helping them make sure that they can bring sort of the, the science and the rigor of marketing into the world of practice. So we convene communities of scholars um, and marketing practitioners through a series of events and roundtables and you know, community offerings. So it's a really exciting place to be, particularly because it's been uh, in existence for several decades, but like everything else, is going through a period of change. And I'm leading mm-hmm. an evolution here to make sure that MSI continues to meet the needs of today's marketers. Um, and that's kind of a thread through my career around um, evolution and change, which is really exciting to me. And I get to work with some pretty pretty fantastic people. Mm-hmm. The whole life, it's pretty... It's a pretty great situation right now from a, a day-to-day logistics perspective, I'll tell you, because I live in Brookline and now work in Cambridge, which means I have about a you know 15 to 20 minute drive to work, which sounds mm. like a really, you know, small thing in the grand scheme of life and what makes you happy. But that is something that um, I haven't had <laughs> for yeah. a while. So that just really makes my life great. Uh, I have two little kids. Uh, who are 
eight and 10, who are, you know, of course, the center of my world. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of things, specifically logistically, tend to revolve around them and their activities. So that proximity and that ability to try to find some some ways you know to be available when they need me is super important. Right. So here you are, you're leading an organization and I know we're going to get to this, but you obviously have a history of throughout your career of working within digital transformation and, and that type of work. So I think you're a great example of someone who, as far as I know, you have leaned in entirely throughout your career, right? I have. Yeah. And some of it was maybe by by purpose and some of it was maybe by circumstance. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just you know, really candidly, there was a, a time, gosh, when I had my daughter, who's the oldest, 10 years ago, I was uh, coming back from maternity leave. So I was I was planning certainly to to lean in. I had no intentions of leaving the workforce actually. But my husband worked for a large ad agency that ended up going under. And so he lost his job right as I was coming back to work from my maternity mm-hmm. leave, which was very unexpected and, you know, put us into a whole different kind of dynamic in terms of, you know, childcare and, you know, stability. And so some of that situation, I think, caused me to, you know, perhaps lean in even more than I had even planned <laughs> planned to. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then there are other periods along the way where, you know, we really had to make that um, you know, a priority to just, you know, stay super committed to the job and the career, even when that you know, was really hard as it is for all of us. Yeah, I think it's something that a lot of us experience and we don't really talk about is once you enter the two income track, oftentimes your lifestyle kind of creeps up with that. And it becomes really difficult to think about how you could ever go down to one one of the two people not working or go, taking a break or, or whatever is appropriate or, or needed at that point. Oh, I agree. And I think those breaks, particularly when they're unexpected, are just really, just really challenge you. You know, and I think one of the things that that, that particular break, which was really unexpected, um, challenged us to do was to look at the positive and measure things not just in financial terms, but obviously, you know, you have this magic moment where you have a, you know, a three month old, you know, daughter, mm-hmm. your, your firstborn, and to then really think not about what we were losing on the term of the second income, but what we were gaining um, mm-hmm. in terms of, you know, we were all set to put her in daycare and, you know, overnight, you know, her dynamic changed. Her dynamic became instead of going to daycare at three months, you know, being home with dad. And mm-hmm. that's a pretty, I think, defining thing that sort of reshaped their relationship and also, you know, made us measure things differently. You know, that ta- that having that parent at home, you know, I would have thought if it had been anyone that it would have, that it would have been me. Um, mm-hmm. So that was an adjustment, but you know, to have that time with a parent was pretty special. And we just really tried to focus on, on that value. Um, but yeah, every, you just, um, I think agility is, <laughs> is a skill that I think I have innately, but it's, you know, it, it gets tested with those kinds of things. And when did he end up going back into the more traditional workforce, if at all? Yeah. So he went back um, before 
my son was born. So when my son was born, we had a completely different um, experience. And then and my son as a baby had a completely different experience. He ended up going to daycare at eight weeks old. So, you know, you kind of contrast those two things where, you know, the oldest is, you know, home with, with dad um, for about three months. And then uh, something was going on at the time with my job, which was at, at Houghton Mifflin at the time that necessitated me getting back really, really soon. Mm-hmm. He was working a full-time job in Boston again. And so, yeah, our little guy ended up going to, to daycare at a really, really early age. And that was, it was really a very different experience for me. So I think going back to work after that leave was so profoundly different than going back um, after, after the first. And when you say different, was it harder or just different? Oh my God, I cried every day. I cried, um, I cried every day. I really did. And I knew he was in good hands because we really you know, had a great you know, daycare place, which was actually where my older daughter um, you know, was as well. So we had great relationships there. But it was different. I mean, I really, even knowing that he was in good hands, I don't think it's an exaggeration that I cried every day as I walked to the subway after dropping, dropping him off because he was just so, he was just so little, you know, he really Mm -hmm. was so little. And so, you know, you do have those moments. And for me, the moment ended up being between, you know, 7.45 and 8 a.m. every (laughs) single day, um, you know, where you question, you know, you question your choices, you question, you know, whether you're doing the right thing. And now here you are and I'm assuming he's fine. He is. (laughs) He is fine. Buddy, you know, you, you fast forward, he's eight and he's, a really independent kid and he is you know really independent really social kid and I don't cry anymore I know he's a good <laughs> I still don't see him during the day because I'm at work but I know that he is having you know a full life outside of me which is another sort of adjustment yeah. I've gone through as well where you realize that your your kids are people and they have they have a very full life that um that exists completely outside of us that we don't even get a window into anymore um, when they're doing their thing at school and when, when we're at work. Yeah. Oh, I know. I was leaning over one of my kids the other day to ask them a question and I saw a text fly by and I'm like, who is that? Who are you talking to? <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. I'm told that I ask too many questions. That's my, <laughs> that's anything. I'm told I ask too many questions. So I have to ask questions because that's the only way I get information. It doesn't flow freely. <laughs> and, exactly. and they're only eight and 10, but I've learned, I don't know if you have this, I've learned to find those moments where they do, the kids do tend to open it up, open up a little bit and it's always um, going to bed at night because they don't mm-hmm. want to go to bed. So they'll find time to talk about anything. And in the car, when they know that they've got, you know, maybe nothing else to do but to talk to mom. But yeah, that's when we that's when I have the great meaningful conversation. So sometimes I wish our drive to school were a little bit longer because that's when mm-hmm. I get all the good information. <laughs> now you're you're obviously in the the city, so to speak, here in, in Boston. And but at one point, didn't you say you went out to the suburbs? Oh, I did. When was that in the the last 10 years? Where was the suburban trip? (laughs) The suburban trip that ended up becoming an urban trip all over again. Yeah, that's a really good lesson, I think, in being true to yourself, too. And I I learned it pretty quickly. Um, We were living in Brookline, which is pretty urban environment. And I was working, you know, right in downtown Boston. Um, The kids were, uh, I think, two and six months. So... 
Uh, we were in an apartment. The kids were sharing a bedroom. It just you know, it felt cramped. And so, you know, that city life was kind of mm-hmm. losing its luster. And we felt like it was that time where we go and we buy a house in the suburbs. And so we did. And we we checked all of the boxes. You know, we had a dog and we wanted a yard for the dog and we checked that box and we wanted a, a dead end cul-de-sac and we checked that box and good schools, check, check, check. And we moved out there and we just were really unhappy and we couldn't mm-hmm. figure out why. Um, and I, you know, for me, I think it was the first went Boston winter that kind of did me in because that beautiful dead end where, you know, you picture your kids playing and not having to worry about cars is wonderful. But then in the winter that turns into you're at the dead end of a dead end street and you get plowed <laughs> in with all of the snow. So the reality was a little bit different than, uh, than the you know, brochure in my head. And it was funny one day, my, my parents were over, they don't live too, too far away. And my mom had asked me this really interesting question that I hadn't thought of. She said, do you, so the suburbs thing, you know, do you, do you live here because you want to live here or because you think it's what you're supposed to do? And it hit me and I answered immediately like, oh no, it's just what I'm supposed to do. Like I'm Mm -hmm. supposed to have this. And it just hit me. And, And fortunately my husband was on the exact same page that that's actually the life that we think we're supposed to want. But for Mm -hmm. us personally, we actually were happier in our tiny cramped apartment where we walked everywhere and, you know, had restaurants around. And so we sold the house and moved back to to Brookline again and just... And so how long were you out there? We were there for about a year, one winter long, (laughs) one winter long episode, Um, you know, and then we found things like, you know, the dog didn't even like the backyard, right? We just assumed that this dog was going to love this backyard. And she was the dogs like, where are all the people? (laughs) Where are all the people? Where's the street noise? Where's all this, you know, activity I'm so used to, but Mm -hmm. it was a really good lesson, you know, for me. And that question my mom asked was so simple, but really um, poignant because I think sometimes we forget to check in with ourselves and say, like, what is my reason for doing this? You know, is it actually because that's something I want to do? That's something I want to have in my life? Um, or I just feel like that's a thing I'm supposed to do for for whatever reason. Yeah. And where do you think that comes from? Because I, I know what you're talking about. And I feel the same way often. I'll, you know, I'll find myself scrolling obsessively on Zillow, looking at all these properties. <laughs> <laughs> Just stop. <laughs> yes. Where do you think that comes from? Is it like the the image of what we should be or should want? Yeah, that's such a great question. I mean, part of it I wonder is um, if it's because just both my husband and I happen to grow up in the suburbs. And so, and I happen to grow up on a, the end of a cul-de-sac, right? And so mm-hmm. I don't know if part of it was this desire to to recreate the way I grew up. That's got to be a little part of it. But I also think that there's this weird, I don't know, pressure, um, I think, as a parent to feel like you're doing the best for your child. And for some reason, I think that there's this perception that the the best for your child means that your child has, you know, the following you know, physical or material things, right? Mm-hmm. You know, a, a house um, and, you know, space and a yard or whatever it might be. And my kids love where they are. They, you know, they've adapted to their their environment. Um, and I think some of it was maybe just projecting, um, 
you know, these like qualities that I feel like are just supposed to be supposed to be true. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, I don't know if you like feel this way too, but, um, you know, maybe a little bit of it, it is just, I mean, gosh, those home renovation shows alone, you know, you watch those, you're like, Ooh, is my house supposed to, look, is my house supposed to look like that? I've got like a Pottery Barn Kids catalog in the mail. And, you know, my kids are past that age. Now they're teenagers. And I'm like, oh, I need, should I have another kid? And I'm like, what am I doing? <laughs> <laughs> I catalog. really need a fuzzy beanbag chair. And I, exactly. you know, I need it to be monogrammed. No, I don't need that. <laughs> exactly. I don't need that. And yeah, I think that's some of it too, because I remember, you know, when, even when my kids were little, you have this idea of, I don't know, you're, you want them to wear these cute little clothes and they throw up on the cute little clothes. So like, really, who are you doing that for? <laughs> you know, like, who are you buying these cute little clothes for? The images we're presented with and then the images that we try to recreate typically don't line up with the reality of what it's like to be with little kids all day. Oh, um, so true. Um, so how, do you mind kind of walking me back to where you started in your career, like where you thought you were going to go and kind of help us understand, help me understand your journey to get where you are today, which, you know, you're at the top of an organization, um, you know, running a business, you've got your, your family in close proximity, and it, it sounds like a great environment. It would be wonderful to hear how you got there. Yeah. And I love the opportunity to tell those stories because, um, it sounds so nice when you put it that way. And it is true. It is nice. Um, but it, it doesn't come by way of a linear path and it doesn't come by way of, um, you know, having a really like step-by-step plan that I in any way, um, stuck to. Um, I think some of the most interesting things that happened in my career were, these inflection points where something actually seemingly bad at times, you know, from a career standpoint, something seemingly bad happened that ended up sort of forcing me to make a change or forcing me to, to adapt. And that adaptation actually ended up leading ultimately to more interesting things. Mm-hmm. Um, but I started actually on Wall Street, which is really strange since I was a psychology major um, undergrad and initially wanted to be, um, you know, wanted to be a a psychologist um, and ended up getting this offer to go to JP Morgan, Mm -hmm. literally on Wall Street. And I just thought that that just sounded, you know, pretty cool and interesting and I would give it a try. And I ended up spending four years uh, in equity research at JP Morgan, which was a great training ground. I had a liberal arts um, background at Dartmouth and mm-hmm. um, didn't have any you know, formal sort of business or finance training. So I felt like it was another four years of continuous learning and I really loved that. But what I learned is I actually didn't love finance. And so I had that um, aha moment um, one day when I would go to lunch, it was, I was one of the few, or actually I think the only um, female analyst in this particular pool. And I'd go to lunch every day with the same group of guys. And I noticed one day that every day at lunch, they would sit and talk about stocks. And mm-hmm. I realized my little light bulb moment was, oh my gosh, you guys actually like this. Like <laughs> you like it so much that you talk about it at lunch. Like I just do it because they pay me. Mm-hmm. And I had that realization of how lucky they were that they were actually doing something that they really liked. 
And then I decided that I needed to make a change. Um, so four years into doing that, I decided I um, really sort of fancy myself a problem solver and always have. I love, you know, um, I just, I love to fix things. I love to sort of figure things out. And I ended up going back to business school with the sole um, purpose of coming out and going into consulting. Um, just kind of fancied myself as this problem solver and, and strategist. Um, and worked in consulting for a while. Um, and moved out to Los Angeles for a while, which was a fun experience. But similar to the suburbs of Boston, I realized that Los Angeles wasn't quite the fit with me personally. And I'm sort of an East Coaster at heart. So I moved back to New York City where I had been for a while. And um, made a pivot. The company I was working for, the consulting firm, um, actually went under really when the um or sort of went under when the the bubble burst um oh, if you yeah. will and so that's another opportunity where you know uh, myself and you know actually most i'd say of my friends who had all graduated from wharton together were in some period of of uh, career instability you know where our companies were going under or we'd already been laid off and was that around like 2000 exactly yep. yeah that's yeah. exactly right yep and um i yeah this was 2000 2001 uh when things were starting to to go downhill and i just made it my business to just try something new and i was just really um you know out there um just trying to introduce myself to like anybody who would talk to me. <laughs> I ended up um, getting connected with somebody at Sirius Satellite Radio and Sirius Satellite Radio at the time was really pre-XM was really um, not well known. And um, they were looking for a head of investor relations. And so I sort of convinced them that um, my experience in equity research um, coupled with my strategy work, you know, made for a really great investor relations person. So um, got hired and had an incredible experience working for Sirius during a really, really interesting time there. And not the easiest time there. This was sort of pre-XM, um, you know, really before Sirius had, had really taken off. Now, obviously, it's everywhere. But back then, I don't remember people really talking about it yet at that point. No, people didn't know. It, it was right at the point of commercialization. So um, in the early years, you know, the, the satellites were launched, the infrastructure was built. Um, they were just getting into building up the music and talk programming. So yeah, I was there at a really early stage, which was also a lot of fun and totally different for me. I really liked that. I, I liked investor relations a lot. I found that I really consider it a marketing job. I, I think it's just marketing a company to a very specific and defined audience, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I really, that's sort of where my interest in marketing actually, it kind of came along. I ended up going and doing that for a couple of other companies in the media space. So I was at IMAX, a uh, large format movie company for a little while, and then was recruited by um, an executive recruiter to come up to Houghton Mifflin, which was mm -hmm. a Boston-based publishing company uh, in 2006, and asked to move up to Boston um, to take that role as the head of investor relations uh, for Houghton. So that's what brought me back up to Boston, which is actually where I had grown up, but never thought wow. I would, never thought I'd live in the same place I grew up. It just, that was not, 
that was not my plan, actually. Yeah. <laughs> Surprised that happened. Um, so yeah, I've been up in the Boston area since 2006. I ended up spending a little over 10 years at Houghton. And that was, I think, my biggest period of, of change. That's where I was when I had my two kids. Um, that's where I was when I was fortunate to have a series of, you know, increasing responsibilities and big swings um, in my career trajectory, you know, from investor relations into strategy, into operations. And then, as you mentioned, into what's become my more recent career arc, which is all around um, transformation and particularly um, digital transformation. So that was a really um, tremendous decade um, of me for personal and, and professional growth. Um, yeah, pretty, pretty remarkable. I think about what was packed into 10 years, but, you know, some of it purposeful, like I said, and some of it just, um, you know, making the best of situations as they came up. Um, I think, you know, you remember there was a, a very large acquisition. Um, you know, there were a lot of um, reorganizations at the company. And I um, just always managed to sort of navigate my way through those and end up in a, you know, better or more interesting, uh, at least position on the other side. It's the, 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 I'd love to hear more from you on your experience with digital transformation in general, because I feel like we're at this interesting point where children now, Gen Z, right, they're, they're digitally native. Companies that are being developed now out of the gate are obviously digital first. But the challenges that large organizations that have been around and been very successful for a long time to incorporate you know, the, or, and adjust and adapt to the world of digital is not nearly as easy as anyone on the outside might think that it is. So I don't know if you could share a little bit about some of the, the at a high level, some of the challenges you see or some of the opportunities you see for companies in that, in that changing world. Oh, yeah. I, uh, I used to say that, you know, it was um, sort of my job to uh, like put the tugboats in the water next to the mothership that would sort of, you know, slowly and <laughs> eventually <laughs> steer it where it needed to go because, um, you know, abrupt change for an organization that was quite big and, and quite old, you know, 180-year-old organization rooted deeply in, in print, in this case, print publishing, um, and had a bit of a purist factor to it, you know, around around the um, kind of sanctity of print. Um, that gets really deeply steeped into a culture, and so to do those kind of transformations, um, it's it's really um, dependent on credibility. I think you know, as a leader who's trying to lead these kind of you know large scale changes, um, you know, credibility with the the naysayers or the skeptics is super important. Mm -hmm. um, there can be a perception that the person with, you know, back then, let's say digital in their title, or certainly transformation or innovation or any of these things in their title, it can come up as a little bit scary or, you know, you know, you're going to come in here and tell, you know, us, these incumbents or, you know, long tenured um, people how to, you know, how to do things and you don't even know what you're talking about, right? So you just have to find a way to establish credibility and also to demonstrate deep respect 
for particularly like for the individuals and the work that they do and understand that a lot of what's motivating the resistance and there was a lot of resistance you know when we Mm -hmm. moved you know print publisher to digital publisher there's a lot of resistance from a lot of um, places and it really comes from a place of um you know, fear and anxiety. Um, I think, you know, I would find that people would immediately, because it's human nature, think about, you know, well, what about my relevance? You know, if I, if I support this and I don't have the skills for this, then what does that mean for me? Um, Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's just a lot of insecurity and anxiety. So showing a deep respect for the skills and the competencies and, you know, the, the ways in which they can, translate to digital is really important. I remember one kind of quick little uh, anecdote of something that worked really well. Um, There was a a head of um, production who had been in the print production business for her entire career, um, decades long career. And I ended up moving her into digital and um, had her, you know, be responsible for digital production, which was very, very different if you look at the face of it, you know, what what mm-hmm. is actually, you know, um, needs to be done on a day-to-day basis. But what I convinced her is the core, at her, at her core, the core skill sets that made her so good at her job, um, obsessing about specs and, you know, kind of be- beating up on vendors and, you know, managing, you know, to such strict, um, you know, delivery dates, those qualities are so transferable into digital production and just kind of getting her to see that and her to believe in that um, was was really critical. But interestingly, I mean, I've, been, I've done it a couple of times over at a couple of different places. And, you know, I'll tell you, sometimes the, the pockets of resistance um, or that resistance to change, it can vary. You know, uh, I've been in situations where the, the board was demanding rapid change and it was sort of the long tenured employees that were, you know, kind of digging in their heels and resistant. And then I've been in places where the employees were like, wow, thankfully someone's come along to, to create yeah. what you know, we need. Um, but it may be some, you know, some of the board or some longstanding partners that just um, can't quite wrap their heads around what a new identity or a new new digital identity would look like. So there is a lot of inertia. I think sometimes the older the organization, you obviously the the more that that can happen, but it's really rewarding work. And it's, it's what kind of keeps me going back to that kind of work because um, it is wonderful to sort of look back and see that, Oh, we did, we did move that needle. Um, yeah. And, you know, it, we didn't, we didn't break anything or maybe broke a couple things along the way, but for, on the whole, you know, really ended up in a better place. And I love that idea of making people feel safe. Like there's a lot of discussion on the idea of corporate antibodies who are you know trying to block innovative efforts or something. And really these are, it's, it's all people, right. Who, who value their jobs and their livelihood. And so your ability to make people safe while driving change forward is incredibly powerful. And I think it's something that anyone involved in digital transformation should think about. Absolutely. And it's one of those things that you, you can't do on paper, right. And what I mean by that is, um, have led some, you know, post-merger integration activities or transformation activities where, you know, the plan may have looked really good on paper, but then 
when you really get into it and you really understand the people behind the titles behind, you know, the, the, the Mm -hmm. paper, um, it, everybody by definition is a unique individual and, you know, you can't make assumptions about people's, you know, skill sets or their, their willingness or ability to adapt. Um, and that's more time consuming, right? It's certainly more time consuming to spend the time to understand, um, you know, the individuals, but you're right. I, I don't inherently believe that the antibodies. I don't think people are trying to be difficult or obstructionist um, because they find it enjoyable. I really think yeah. it, it's from a very real, you know, fear and anxiety. And I think acknowledging that is really important. I'm a big fan. Of, this is a weird thing, and in, in particularly in corporate settings, but maybe it goes back to the psychology, you know, degree. Mm-hmm. But I'm a big fan of acknowledging feelings. Um, and I think that it's just really important to let people know that it's okay not only to be anxious, but also articulate that they're anxious um, and try to get to the root of, of the why. And I always like to create cultures where people can actually feel free to do that. That's been really important to me. That's great. And so where you are now and you're working on, do you feel that the psychology degree prepared you for marketing? Because there's a, there's a lot of overlap there in some ways, right? It's a lot of overlap. Yeah. And, and I'm finding it so fun. I mean, what, what I get to do here is actually read the research that's coming out of you know, these um, top scholars from these universities who are researching just really, really interesting problems. And um, it's a whole, um, you know, incredible body of work being done on data science and data analytics, um, and the role of artificial intelligence. Um, these, you know, kind of buzzwordy things, but you know, very, very real, you know, breakthroughs and thinking that are now being you know, put into into practice. And then the other side um, of marketing, where we do a lot of work and see a lot of really, really interesting research, is on the consumer behavior side or um, mm. uh, behavioral science, as it's now called. And for me personally, that's where I tend to gravitate because, as you said, because of that psychology background, because it is it comes down to um, consumers as people and as decision makers and really thinking about and yes trying to influence the mm-hmm. the decision making process and i just really find that that fascinating so it's funny when you ask about sort of my career journey and how i got from there to here i always joke i could tell this very false um but a very nice sounding story about how it was all planned and so psychology background brought me to where I am today. And, um, and yet it's, it's just absolutely not true, but I'm just fortunate that I ended up, um, you know, seeking out and finding opportunities that interested me and led me to something that I, you know, currently find just really, really interesting. Um, I think if you're intellectually curious, you will always, um, just, you know, seek out opportunities to keep learning. Um, and that's that's definitely true of of where I am now. I'm learning every day. Yeah, I, I try, one of the things I've been trying to impress on people who've been on my teams over the years is 
just, you know, if you can just focus on what you're doing today and continue to learn, good things will happen, right? If you do a good job and you're learning, somehow something new will open up and not to worry too much about exactly what that next step is going to be um, day one. Do you have any info you can share on the consumer behavior side that me as a, that I as a consumer should be aware of? <laughs> oh, well, we have had some incredible people come and present their work. I'll tell you one of the, the most interesting um, uh, presentations I saw re- recently was around um, financial decision-making. Um, so we have a lot of uh, members here at MSI in financial services and um, really trying to understand the psychology behind you know, financial decision-making and why Mm -hmm. people do or don't act in their best self-interest when it comes to making, you know, financial decisions, um, particularly um, around financial decision-making for couples and how couples, um, you know, have, tend to be attracted, a person tends to be attracted to um, a partner who actually has a different, um, a different view of um, of money <laughs> than they do, so oh, really? it's sort of this interesting, like opposites attract sort of um, you know phenomenon. Like, so, what's an example of that? Yeah, it was um, talking about the the person who has actually the exhibits the most confidence around um, financial decision making um, tends to be the one who dominates the financial decisions in the family. Um, irregardless of the actual um, knowledge, right? That it's just this perception of like confidence um, leads one, you know, spouse typically to, you know, really take control and, you know, the other to, you know, at times sort of run run away from it. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, interestingly, that's actually true in our household as well. I, you know, worked in finance um, and uh, yet my husband's, you know, very, confident in sort of you know household budgets and financial management um and it kind of became this thing that gelled really early on where you know that was that was his thing which you again looking at us on paper wouldn't think that would be true you would think it would be the person who <laughs> worked in finance and that you know has the degree but so there's a lot of really interesting things um that we see around you know how people just how people make decisions how they uh, whether it's you know exposure to um, you know exposure to ads, um, you know how you know brands are represented, the kind of psychological or the kind of nudges that um, will you know kind of push someone um, towards taking an action or not. Um, there's a deep rooting uh, in psychology um, in marketing, and actually beyond psychology, I mean marketing is becoming very interdisciplinary. As well, we actually look at a lot of research that's not being done by marketing professors, but by, um, you know, um, uh, uh, economists, uh, Mm -hmm. computer science. Um, So, yeah, marketing is becoming, I think, more um, interdisciplinary, more complex um, than it has and and certainly more quantitative um, and scientific than it has before. And it's it's interesting that we're an organization that's been around for over 50 years, um, and we have always, you know, been establishing and maintaining the the rigor around marketing. That this is very much a scientific discipline, um, and I think that is 
you know, pretty widely accepted now, and I think becoming more so every day. So yeah, it's a fun space to be in. And I do, as I said, I do tend to um, gravitate towards the consumer behavior side of things just from personal interest, um, but have, I think, been in the fortunate position where I just get to listen to incredibly smart people talk about their work, uh, both on the research and the, the practitioner side too, you know, mm-hmm. things that interesting companies are doing to you know, to engage customers. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a really fun uh, place to be. I read this, this article, it was a book I read a few years ago. I think I told you about this and I think it was called the culture code. And the, the, the idea was that marketers or companies realized that you, in some cases, if a culture had never been exposed to a certain type of product, you needed to introduce it to very young children to make sort of a psychological imprint so that they would buy your goods later in life. And one of the examples was, um, I believe like a coffee company was trying to sell coffee into Japan and they couldn't because it was a tea culture and they started selling coffee flavored candy. And then 30 years later, they had a coffee market in Japan. Have you, have you looked into like how, (laughs) how early do you start marketing to people? early exposure no not specifically but I'm just thinking in my own mind about um you know things that that kids are exposed to certainly you know from a um from a brand perspective I mean kids know brands very very young yeah yeah, which is that McDonald's logo and all those things as they're learning their letters oh absolutely I mean I I just think you know they have such a strong you know association with brands I know um I think you have boys I have a little boy and just you know the you know brands like Nike and Under Armour and you know the um Mm -hmm. there's just this I I almost feel like my uh, probably when he was three, sort of knew what what Under Armour and Nike mm-hmm. were. Um, yeah, the the brand recognition is just so so strong, um, and it's interesting too because you know if you think about you know, okay, you know, advertising um, is more difficult. You know, when we grew up, when I grew up, you watched the commercials that were you know occurring in the sh- the one show that you were watching. You watched yeah. the one show, you watched it from start to finish and you, yep. you know, it was on it for. Exactly. <laughs> it was on it for. And uh and now, you know, the, the ability to, you know, turn that off, the um, but also the ability to kind of get hit with messages from multiple different um, you know, media is is so strong as well. So yeah, and, and on the flip side too, some of that that exposure, um, I, it makes me pause and think, what are my children exposed to on a daily basis that I'm not aware of that will imprint on them and then, you know, perhaps, it, you know, make them, I don't know, love coffee because they had some experience I, when they were, when they were really tiny. A few years ago, I saw a car ad with like Yo Gabba Gabba characters climbing in and out of the car. I think it was for Kia. And I sat there thinking, is this commercial directed at adults? Right, because they're the ones hailing the taxi. Is this directed at the kids thinking maybe in 15 years they'll beg for a... Exactly. I mean, it was Gabba Gabba and it was Kia. I think I remember that because we had... Yeah. We had big Gabba Gabba fans in the the house. I I remember watching that thinking, this is not speaking to me. (laughs) No, this is not like... 
this is not all speaking to me. And yet the number of hours I've spent watching, watching that and watching other things <laughs> like that is pretty astounding. But you're right. These are not the, the kids are not the car buyers, but you wonder if like down the line, well, we'll have to check in with each other and see if our kids, when they are old enough to drive and are car shopping, if they're like, Hey, let me think about a Kia. <laughs> well, you know, that's, that's one of the things we're noticing now is that the kids in high school are not as quick to want to drive. Like when I was in high school, it was the minute you you were of age, you were running out the door to try to figure out how to get your license. And there, there with every, all the ride sharing apps out there and different, you know, there's the scooters in Brookline right now. I mean, there's so many different ways for them to be mobile. Um, nobody's begging. Nobody's <laughs> begging, right? And it, when we grew up, yeah, it was um, like a symbol of freedom, right? And independence. And now I think it's a symbol of like responsibility more than freedom. I think, you know, there isn't, I see the same thing. I mean, my daughter's only 10, but it's funny. She will say, well, she's the oldest for her, um, one of the oldest in her class because of the, the cutoff here is September 1 and she's a September 5th baby. So she's on the older side for her particular class. And I remember thinking, gosh, that means she's going to be, you know, the first to do many mm -hmm. things, but the first to get her driver's license. And she'll say, no, I'm going to wait. I mean, she's 10 and she's already thinking about yeah, the fact that yeah, she's going right. to wait. She's like, no, no interest. Maybe I'll get right. it when I'm 18. <laughs> right, right. My older one is 16. And, and I said, do you, all right, let's go. Let's, let's go get this. And he's like, oh, I'll wait, you know, a couple months because then it'll be summer. And, you know, I don't really want to be liable for the car. I'm like, who is worried about that? Exactly. It really is. It's in, but when we grew up, it was, it was this like, feeling of like freedom and, and independence and I remember so quick like overshare here but I failed my driver's test the first time I took it and I was mm -hmm. when I was six I think 16 we got our permit and 16 and a half we could take the driver's test and it was a snowy December day and I had to parallel park on a hill in the snow oh, no. yeah and like totally <laughs> sound like I'm making excuses but it was all true <laughs> and I, and I, and I, and I botched it and I failed. And I remember just the shame and sort of devastation that I felt at that because it was such a big deal then. It was such a big oh, deal. Oh yeah. I remember we all knew when someone passed or failed exactly. one of the tests, like everybody knew. And I, I mean, I, I'm a terrible parallel parker, but I have, um, but when I took my test, there were just cones, I think in Connecticut somewhere. So oh, I was somehow, somehow I got through it, yeah. but to this day, I'm like, oh, um, yeah, no, completely. So, and then did you take it again right away or did you wait a while? I think I had to wait. I forget there was a short waiting period of, of something that is probably very short, but felt like incredibly long, you know, in the life of a teenager, it was probably a month or something like that. And, mm -hmm. and, you know, and did it again. Um, but yeah, it was a, it was a big deal because as you said, everybody knew and it was just expectation. And so, um, but now, yeah, I, I can imagine why there's not, you know, a big, a big rush. Um, I actually truthfully hate, I hated to drive because I spent so many years living in New York and didn't drive at all. And when I moved back up to Boston, I actually, you know, in my thirties had to sort of relearn how to drive because it had been so long and it was a really humbling experience. Um, and my dad literally came over and like sat in the car with me, like, you know, 
like as if I were 16 again and, you know, we went around the parking lot <laughs> and I refreshed myself because sometimes you have to do those things in life. You get humbled and you realize, wow, this is not a strength of mine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when I, I know when my, um, I learned how to drive standard and when I was in my twenties, because my husband was like, okay, I'm going to take a car and go to upstate New York and I, can you meet me there? And I had to drive the standard to meet him there. <laughs> so, right. Necessity. I mean, you just had to I, do it. Yeah. I mean, I had gone around the parking lot a few times, but then really I was like, well, I need to figure this out. Otherwise I'm just going to be stranded. Right. It's such a strong motivator. It's such a strong motivator. Yeah. I really, um, I really didn't like it when we, which is also, which also fed into the suburbs versus city thing. I got really comfortable. I'm a big walker. I love to be a pedestrian. And so um, moving to the suburbs made me dependent on a car, which I really, mm -hmm. you know, didn't like. So that didn't, that didn't work as well for me. Um, but now it's funny, kind of fast forward. And now I'm very comfortable driving. So you, you can teach a, an old dog new tricks or <laughs> old, trick, yeah. old tricks that become new again. You, you can learn in your life and you're taking people through digital transformation. <laughs> what, um, you know, if you had advice to, either to share with your, your younger self or with other women or, or men who are kind of navigating all these decisions right now, what's some advice that you would give? Oh, sure. A part of it, I think, is being okay with things not being okay, right? I think that that's a really difficult thing for anybody. Um, but I think when we're young, and particularly those who are, you know, young and very you know, motivated, um, you know, from, from a young age, those, you know, kind of over overachievers, you have an idea that you'll have a plan. And that you'll stick with that plan and that any deviations from that plan are somehow a failing, right? And, you know, for me, I've, I've finally learned to embrace that the deviations from the plan are actually the accelerators to a better plan. Um, and it's like, you know, you just said with having to drive, you know, drive a stick because, okay, that was the situation that occurred. And so you learned faster than you would have if you had, you know, so let's take six months and really, you know, and really get good at this. So I think being okay with things not always being okay um, is, um, it's just a really important approach. Um, it can be hard. I think when you have your first setback, um, whether that's, you know, not getting a promotion that you, you know, thought you deserved or, um, you know, things not, you know, working out, you know, exactly as you had planned in terms of I'm going to be doing this within five years and this within 10 years. Um, but that those really are the, the sort of beautiful moments to, to embrace. Um, you know, the other thing that, you know, I certainly would want to tell, tell my kids, um, is that, Sometimes you don't always know what you're going to love until it kind of hits you in the face, right? And the reason mm -hmm. I say that is I think we're all really fond of telling our kids, like, you know, just do what you love, right? You know, do what you love. And, you know, for me, I don't think I knew what I loved for a really long time. You know, it wasn't of a, a, a defined thing, um, a specific sector or specific, um, you know, practice. Um, I love transformation. I love mm -hmm. bringing organizations along. Um, 
the, the journey of change. Um, I love leading people. I mean, these are things that you don't normally think of when you say to, you know, a you know, 15 year old, you know, do what you're good at. What are you good at? Well, I'm really good at digital transformation. <laughs> you know, it's, it just isn't, you know, immediately uh, apparent. So I love to say, you know, do what you love. Um, but I also like to say, just try things and, you know, be, be open to the idea that you might not even know what you love for a period of time, right? It just, yeah. it, because sometimes I think we put that pressure even on, on kids and on, on college students, you know, pursue what you love. And I think there's a lot of kids out there that know exactly what they love and know exactly what they want to do. I was not that kid. And I always felt a little bit um, uh, sort of floundering, I think, at points because I didn't, I didn't know exactly what I loved. I knew a lot of things I liked, but I didn't have that true north, you know, um, you know, that guided me. And I think being okay with that is important. I think that's one of the the things I'm kind of struggling with intellectually as I'm getting older is as I'm watching kids come through the education systems now, I feel like everything is uh, spoken about as the means, you know, you're here, you have to get straight A's so that you can get into this school or so that the next step, the next step. And that's not really talking about learning. Like there's no opportunity really. It doesn't feel like there's a real clear opportunity for kids to feel like they're learning and exploring and trying on a different hat. And maybe that didn't work. Like we talk a lot about, you know, freedom to fail, but it doesn't translate into, you know, what, what they're being told simultaneously. Oh, exactly. I mean, there's, there's still a, a track, right? And there's still, you know, a track and, you know, the, the direction, there's only one direction you're supposed to be going and that's forward, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's not a lot of, you know, leeway for sort of pausing or, or go, you know, going sideways. So I think that's true. I think that's a little bit of a, um, you know, of a, of a mixed message. Um, and it's, um, I, I'm, I'm hard pressed to think of a way that you really, ingrain that in a child and tell them that it's okay when I think most of the the structure and the system tells them the opposite. Right. I don't know. Yeah. We'll have to figure <laughs> the answer to that one. <laughs> yeah. Well, when everyone's driving a Kia and you've got the marketing figured exactly. out. Exactly. Right. Right. The kids will definitely, I really will. I promise we'll follow up with one another and we'll see if our kids end up driving Kias because they'll remember, uh, what was it? Uh, Ro- Ro- yeah, Ro- Roby, the green guy who Drove a Kia. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, Cheryl, thank you for taking the time again today. I really appreciate it um, and look forward to catching up with you soon again. Oh, you too, Claudia. Always get to catch up. Thanks for the opportunity to chat. Yeah, thank you. Talk to you soon. That's it for this time, but we'll be back next week for another inspiring conversation with another inspiring woman. If you could take just a minute to rate and review the podcast wherever you're listening, I'd really appreciate it. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to hear these stories. The 43% is produced by me, Claudia Reuter, with additional help from the team at Critical Frequency. Our executive producer is Amy Westervelt. Episodes are mixed by Tyler Morissette, and our music is from Martin Wisenberg. 
You can find The 43% wherever you listen to podcasts, on our website at the43percent.com or at criticalfrequency.org. Thanks again for listening and have an awesome week.